1: time for another episode of News Solo on Legal Talk Network. I'm Adriana Linares. I'm your host. I'm a legal technology trainer and consultant. I time zone hop helping lawyers and law firms use technology better and implement new solutions and tools and services. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to make sure and thank our sponsors. Nexa, formerly known as Answer One, is a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for law firms. Learn more by giving them a call at 800 267 9371 or online at nexa.com. Thanks to our sponsor Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio.com and that's c l i o.com. We'd like to thank our sponsor Law Clerk, where attorneys go to hire freelance lawyers. Visit lawclerk.legal to learn how to increase your productivity and your profits by working with talented freelance lawyers. They've given us a rebate code that you can use after your first project to take $300 off. Lawclerk.legal is where you're going to go, and the rebate code is solo 300 We've got a new sponsor, and I'm very excited about them. Thanks to our sponsor, Ross Intelligence, the legal research platform that leverages AI to get to the heart of legal issues fast. Go to rossintelligence.com for a 14-day free trial. Okay, let's move on and introduce my guest today, which I'm super excited about. And we've been trying for a long time to get together and find the time. He's a very busy attorney practicing in Florida. His name is Daniel Whitehouse. And I'm going to ask him to tell us a little bit more about himself and his practice. Hey, Daniel.
2: Hey, Adriana. Thanks so much for having me on. As you said, my name is Daniel Whitehouse. I'm a technology attorney based out of the Orlando area. I have a background in technology with a bachelor's in computer science, worked in the IT industry before going to law school, and I've now married the two practices together, the technology and the law. I work with a lot of different technology companies, I deal with a lot of different technology issues, even if you're not a technology company, including talking with lawyers about our own own technology uses from an ethical standpoint and trying to keep ourselves out of trouble is one of the other things I work on are data breaches and unfortunately when we get to that point where our information has been disclosed to someone who's unauthorized to receive it I'm on the receiving end of that phone call and trying to help the business or the attorney or whomever it might be through that crisis type of situation so it's a very interesting and emerging time in technology and, and certainly in the technology and the law field. And glad to be doing this podcast here with you today. It's certainly a much needed topic.
1: I completely agree. And thank you so much. Let me ask you a little bit. You said you have a technology background. What does that mean?
2: <laughs> I, uh, Did I, I open have up a-, a
1: big giant can of history worms?
2: No, no, not not at all. I worked in IT consulting on the outsourcing arena and dealing with data center migrations and very large Fortune X100 companies and use that background and, and now work with some of those from the legal side.
1: Oh, that sounds perfect. Like you said, you married the two. Sounds like it's hopefully a happy marriage.
2: Indeed, yes. There's no talk of divorce anytime soon.
1: (laughs) Oh, good. That would be ugly. (laughs) Who would keep all the PII? Um, Well, cool. So thanks, Daniel. I appreciate that little bit of background. What I really wanted to talk to you about and have you talk to us about is terms of service and a lot of the popular third party services that we use in the legal world today. And a lot of that, I think when we think about that, when you say to a group of lawyers, what are you using for document sharing or email management? A lot of their answers are gonna be Gmail and not necessarily G Suite. So we're gonna talk about the difference between those two. Dropbox, which is of course very popular And there's a free version, there's a paid version, and and you and I have a a short list of of topics that we're going to go through, but why don't we start with, let's just knock out sort of some of the administrative stuff to say that we talked about it. I, I don't think any of this is new to a lot of us. We all know that there are model rules, there are ethics rules, there are now 36 states that have decided understanding technology and how to use it and its risks and benefits are an important part of being a lawyer, Florida is, and I think North Carolina now has hopped on, but Florida was the first state to make technology a CLE requirement. That's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart because I was a big part of having that happen in Florida and it made me very happy. While I don't believe that a lawyer can learn everything there is to know about technology with three hours of CLE being mandated over three years, I think the signal we were trying to send there through the Florida Bar was, it's important topic. So give us a little bit of your usual talk about understanding the services that you're using and the ethical requirements or risks that are involved when we sign on with a free service or even a paid-for service.
2: Sure. And you're right. It's not a new topic, yet it's one that we continue talking about because very many lawyers are so risk-adverse that they seem to think that this whole cloud computing thing, and and I use air quotes when I refer to this thing, is something new. It's something we can't define. Frankly, it's something we've been using since the very beginning of the internet. If you go back to the days of dial-up where you were connecting in via AOL or CompuServe Mm -hmm. or any of those services, that was cloud computing way back then. We didn't call it cloud computing back then. We didn't have that good of a definition for it, but that's what we were using. We didn't own and control all of the data that was sitting in our email boxes that was being managed by those services so here we are a large number of years later they're still talking trying to define what this cloud computing thing is how we can use it how we can't use it and a number of the bar associations around the country have issued ethics opinions on the use of cloud computing florida was one of those in 2012 we had our cloud computing ethics opinion come out And they surveyed the other ethics opinions at the time that were in existence. Very common themes among all of them. And that common theme is, yes, you can use cloud computing if you use reasonable diligence in the selection of the vendor. And you, as the attorney, understand that you are ultimately responsible for anything that may occur through that cloud computing environment, meaning some unauthorized individual, or let's just call them criminal, some criminal gets access to your data. You have to be responsible for whatever comes as a result of that. The big thing for us as attorneys is we have to protect attorney-client privilege. If our data has been disclosed to some unauthorized third party, we risk losing attorney-client privilege. That's the backbone of all of these ethics opinions. If we use cloud computing, are we still maintaining attorney-client privilege? Can we look our clients in the eyes and say, yes, we are maintaining attorney-client privilege, even though I'm using whatever platform it is that's out there? This is very similar to the concept of having administrative staff in your office, whether they are full-time staff or contract staff. The attorney is ultimately responsible for ensuring those administrative staff adhere to the same ethical obligations that the attorneys have. Apply that to the cloud computing vendor space. Those vendors must comply with the same ethical obligations that we as attorneys must comply with. If you just pick that piece up, you move it to the internet, and you apply the same concept, that gives you the answer as to whether you, the attorney, have adequate control over the data that you're placing in the internet. doesn't mean that one of your trusted staff people can't all of a sudden steal protected information, client confidential information. That could happen in the cloud computing space as well. But have you been diligent, in when you hired that staff person, did you have any reason to believe that staff person would go and do something like that? Same concept with the vendor. Do you have any reason to believe that vendor would have taken that data and done something nefarious with it?
1: That sounds kind of scary. I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure there are some lawyers going, uh, but how do I know what those services and companies are doing? How do I know what unauthorized access is. Just by housing it out there, does that count as unauthorized access? Or it's authorized because I'm letting my data go there.
2: Essentially, the vendor becomes an agent of the attorney, just like that staff person that the attorney hires. So how do you know your paralegal isn't going to steal attorney-client privilege information and bring it to opposing counsel. How do you know that? Does that stop the attorney from never hiring a paralegal? Of course not. There's some level of trust that we have to grant to our trusted agents if we're going to allow any of this control to seep away from us. So if we want to use cloud computing, we have to grant that level of control to those trusted partners as well. But I th- I, I want to just highlight the trusted aspect Oh, good. Of I that. was going to ask
1: you about that. I'm like, <laughs> oh, how do we put them on the trusted list? <laughs> I,
2: I wish there was a, a, a checklist to say that this one is a good one, this one is a bad one, because the, the good ones today may not be the, the good ones in five years from now. And the bad ones today may assuming there are bad ones, the bad ones today may evolve into good ones over time. Uh, Or or perhaps there are some offerings that the, you know, quote unquote, bad ones might use that turns them into a good one.
1: (laughs) So that means um, regularly reviewing what those companies are offering and doing. And when you get one of those notices that they've changed their terms of service or other notices like that, we should actually read them?
2: We really should, okay. even, though,
1: <laughs>
2: even though Chief Justice Roberts has said he doesn't read those uh, contracts that are on the internet, when it comes to us selecting our cloud providers, we, we really should be reviewing those terms of service and when they do change, what changes with regard to our responsibility. That's the, reading the terms of service is the only way we're going to be able to answer whether these vendors fall into the trusted category or not. It's, it's like reading the resume of the person who's applying to work in your office. You wouldn't just have anybody who walks in take the job and start tomorrow. You're going to do some sort of a screening process. And the screening process for cloud computing vendors is the terms of service. It's also it very well could be the privacy policies.
1: Oh, that's a great analogy. Good way to put it is if you're going to sign up for a service, consider it like a resume for someone that you're going to have helping you in your office. I think that's a great idea. Well, I know lawyers are really good at reading contracts and legal documents and privacy policies. A lot of that can be, though, mumbo-jumbo, either just because they don't understand the terminology or it just, you know, who has time to really read all that? So when we're reviewing a terms of service and or a privacy policy, What are the main questions that we should look at or terms or what are the questions that we're looking to answer? I assume it's things like, who owns my data? Where is my data stored? Is the data encrypted? Who has the decryption keys? So I'm sure you must have a a quick little checklist. I'm sure it's not quick, actually, (laughs) (laughs) Of, of what we're looking for
2: yeah and and those are definitely some of the items that we want to look for and frankly if every vendor had the same form of of how they laid it out it would be so much easier for us to just tick through a checklist and say yes this vendor meets this criteria no this one doesn't that 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 type of thing but the manner in which all of these terms of service are written are very different some of them are more from a legalese standpoint and you, you can tell that as a lawyer, that it's it's legalese. Others are geared toward more of the consumer, and they're written in consumer-friendly language. And so they use cutesy terms like, your stuff is yours. Well, what is, <laughs> what is my stuff? What are, what are we talking about? And what they really mean is any of the documents, any of the data that you upload into the platform, that's your content. Some of them will refer to it as content, others will refer to it as your stuff. So who owns it is certainly a very critical question. And for me, that's the threshold question. If if you're telling me that you take any ownership in my data, how am I preserving attorney-client privilege if I've now granted you ownership to the data that I'm going to upload? And if you don't own it, if I continue to own my stuff, what are you going to do with it? Who are you going to share it with? Where are you going to store it? You mentioned where is it located? I want my data stored in the United States because if I ever have to get a court to enforce some action against my data, I need a United States court to do that. I can't guarantee that a court in foreign jurisdiction is going to treat my data the same way. What are you going to do with my data? Who are you sharing it with? And again, remember we said some of this is in the terms of service. Some of it's in the privacy policy. You kind of have to flip back and forth. The sharing of the data, that many times is in the the privacy policy side of it. And what I want to see there is that you're sharing it with no one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Good
1: tip. Good tip. (laughs) Tip number one, listeners. The answer to who you're sharing it with is no one.
2: And I I say that, but then, of course, there's always an exception to the rule. So some services will use other vendors on the back end for third-party data storage. So Amazon Web Services is one of those that uh, many vendors use as their place of storage. And they will disclose to you that we may store your data on our servers that are in our data centers located in the U.S., or we may store them on... Amazon Web Services, that's also located in the US. I'm probably okay with that if if I see that, but if I do uh, and they point me to Amazon's terms of service that they are applying, I will review that as well. So now we're we're two layers. We're
1: hopping, that's exactly what I was gonna ask you. So like you said, most or a lot of services use AWS. So does that mean you know, go look at AWS at least one time. And then when you sign up for a service who uses AWS, then you've got that covered because a lot of them do use it. Can we name some names that I know are, are popular? Sure. So if we're looking, let's talk about just at gmail.com. Let's start mm-hmm. with Gmail.
2: The free version, right? We yeah, get I mean, the gmail.com. We we're going we to mm-hmm. yeah. okay. start with at Gmail. Yeah. We're going to start
1: with at Gmail. Now, um, when you say data, are you thinking or considering? Email the same as an attachment that's in an email, which is a document.
2: Gmail, in particular, yep. treats data as the same whether it's an email and it's the substance in an email, or if it's an attachment that I'm storing in Google Docs, or it's an atta- or a document, excuse me, that mm-hmm. I'm storing in Google Docs, or an attachment to an email within Gmail. They treat all of those the same for. Uh, A very useful reason on their end.
1: (laughs) Which is advertising.
2: Advertising, yes. Yes, advertising.
1: without having to spend too much time on Gmail, let's just make this really easy. Is it okay for me as a lawyer to use free Gmail as my email service provider to communicate with clients or even just to email myself documents to be able to work on them on an airplane or have them somewhere else?
2: In my professional opinion, no.
1: Excellent. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's because they use robots to scan all that data and then mine keywords out of that data in order to offer me up advertisements that are based on that information?
2: You know, if they just said that in their terms of service, that we're going to scan it with robots and we're going to send you advertising. If they just said it in that language... I would probably change my opinion on whether we can professionally use uh-huh. Gmail. But they say so much more than that. So much more. If Tell you us. look at <laughs> if you look at their terms of service and the grant of the IP license to the content that goes through any of the at Gmail free services. They give themselves a worldwide royalty-free license to use, reproduce, create derivative works, and all of those intellectual property type clauses that, that IP lawyers are used to seeing to themselves for the purpose of delivering the service or any other purpose they deem necessary.
1: Wow. It's kind of like the John Mayer song of your body is a wonderland, but more like your data is a wonderland and I can <laughs> enjoy it. In any way I want.
2: (laughs) Talk about interesting analogies. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So um, what about other popular free email services? And I'm going to start with Outlook.com because we often get, you know, for some reason, I feel like we think we can trust Microsoft more than we can Google. But what about Outlook.com?
2: I'm going to put that in the same category of free email. So so there's, there's a saying in the tech industry that if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Are
1: the product. Okay. Yes.
2: All right. And any of these free type services, they're making money off of you somehow. And the only way they're going to be able to make that money is through the advertising revenue that, that you were mentioning before. That's a legitimate way for them to make money off of consumers. Us as attorneys, we have a much higher standard than the average consumer. One job. One job. Protect attorney-client privilege. We're not doing it with free products. Okay. Don't use the free products.
1: Excellent. God, i love you. If I could hug you through this video, I would. (laughs) What about Dropbox?
2: So... And let's still,
1: let's stay in the free lane for right now, because yeah. then I'm going to switch and ask you about the paid-for services. But right now, I'm just a solo attorney. I'm fresh out of law mm-hmm. school. I've got to find a place to put my documents that I can share them with clients, that I can have them on my Mac and my PC and my phone, and I just sign up at Dropbox.com.
2: I'm not going to store my documents on Dropbox.com for a host of reasons. One is what we've talked about previously. What, What is the license that they're using? What are they going to be doing with that? But there's a number of very interesting terms in Dropbox's terms of service. Things like, we'll encrypt your data at rest. Our employees don't have access. Oh, but maybe a few of them will have access. But don't worry, we won't use it unless we need to. (laughs) <laughs> we flip flop back and forth on these things probably four or five different times, and it just got me to the point where I'm not sure what they're actually doing with the data that we would upload to Dropbox. Who does have access? Who doesn't have access? I'm not going to risk it. Another thing on Dropbox is, and, and, and this goes to any cloud provider that's out there, what is their reputation in the industry? How have they been from moment they were conceived as a startup to the time now. If you Google some of the security flaws that Dropbox has had over the years, there's, there's quite a few of them. And even if they were to change their terms of service to something that was, was more in line with what we would expect as attorneys, I'm not going to risk placing my data in Dropbox because of what I've seen from some of the security flaws they've had.
1: Okay. And, um, just a question I'm going to throw out there, although I know the answer, but I'm just going to say it because somebody's probably thinking it. I have HIPAA compliance requirements based on my practice. These services are most certainly not going to be HIPAA compliant.
2: They will not sign a business associate agreement.
1: Not even so, close.
2: No, not even close. Now, on the, the free side, they they absolutely okay. will not sign business associate agreements.
1: Right. Yeah. All right. What are the, some of the other popular services that I just want to make sure. I mean, I think we can we pretty much put a blanket over the whole if it's free chances are it wouldn't hold up in our conversation.
2: That's my blanket. If it's free, put it in that category. Some are better than others. But what is what is better? And are you willing to risk your law license on that?
1: Great. Well, before we flip over and talk to some of the paid services, which I am sure a lot of listeners are right now going, "Thank God I stopped using free and I've upgraded and now I pay." Let's take a couple of minutes to listen to some messages from some sponsors. Artificial intelligence won't outpace lawyers anytime soon, but lawyers who use AI are already outpacing lawyers who do not. With Ross Intelligence Lawyers conducting legal research leverage AI to get to the heart of legal issues fast. Ask a question on the Ross Legal Research Platform and Ross will return on Point Case Law. Go to rossintelligence.com today and get a 14-day free trial. Use promo code LEGALTALK for 10% off. If you're missing calls, appointments, and potential clients, it's time to work with Nexa Professional. More than just an answering service, Nexa's virtual receptionists are available 24-7 to schedule appointments, qualified leads, respond to emails, integrate with your firm's software, and much more. Nexa ensures your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-267-9371 or visit them at nexa.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. And we're back. Okay, so now that Daniel has scared the pants off of most of us from using free services, wait, can I go back and ask you one backwards question? Oh, sure. On, On Dropbox Free, what if the documents that I put into Dropbox are there temporarily, but they're all documents that have been publicly filed in court.
2: Yeah, I have people say that all the time, that if, if I'm filing something that's publicly available somewhere else, is that okay? I, I don't see why not. I mean, that's not Privileged information once it's filed with the court, assuming it's the same versions, you know, any redaction, things of that nature that, that are filed with the court. If it really is the same version that I can get from going to the clerk's website and downloading that file, that pleading, that what have you, then that's not attorney client privilege information.
1: Okay, great. Whew. So there's that. <laughs> there's that bit of hope. So let's talk about paid services because to move from Gmail to G Suite, which is Google's business level service, is so cheap. I just don't know why anybody wouldn't do it. We're talking $6 a month per user. And then also Microsoft to go from something free like Outlook.com or what was live.com over to Office 365, where now I'm paying for the services. And it's also very affordable $8 to $12 a month per user. What happens to all of those terms and what I need to worry about when I move from free to paid?
2: The first thing you get when you pay the $6 or however much it is a month for each of those is a completely different terms of service than what we've been talking about before. Some of them are in completely different areas of their website. If you go to gmail.com and you scroll down, the terms of service there, that's the, the, the regular consumer-based terms of service. It's only when you go to sign up as a business that you see the business version or the paid version of those terms of service. You are no longer the product once you're paying that nominal fee per month. And they are willing to, absolutely worth it. They are willing to grant you the protections that you, you really need as an attorney to use the service. They're also willing, most of them, to sign a business associate agreement. And that, if, if you use that as a litmus test, you know, if, if you if you don't do anything in the medical world, and this whole business associate agreement is is foreign to you, it's all about protecting PHI, protected health information, and the, the regulations that are associated with protecting PHI. If you find a vendor that is willing to sign a business associate agreement and is acknowledging that they will be responsible to the Office of Civil Rights, you can use that as a litmus test to say, you know what, this is one that, that understands its data protection obligations. I, I'm not giving you carte blanche to just use them without reading their terms of service. Don't get me wrong. But there's a pretty good chance at that point that you are not the product any longer and that you're using a, a product that, that understands why they're in business
1: if I have paid and upgraded to the paid services for either one of those two, G Suite or Office 365, which I'm going to just sort of confine the conversation to those two products, because I think those are most definitely the most popular. And I do the type of work that requires a business associate agreement. Do I need to sign up for that separately? Or is it just sort of understood that that's part of what I'm paying for? Because you said they're not willing to sign. So my question is, Do I have to ask them to sign if I need that level?
2: There is a process for, yeah, and it's within your administrative panel usually that that you can go and execute the business associate agreement on both sides. I do want to make one caveat though, because if your business is one that you're dealing with PHI or highly sensitive information, it may not be something that you want to be emailing back and forth anyway, so don't don't get some false sense of security that just because you logged into your, your G Suite and you signed a business associate agreement that all of a sudden you can just start sending social security numbers via email or medical records or or anything of that nature. You still need to take additional steps from an encryption standpoint to protect that, and, and you're not gonna email it from one party to another anyway. You're probably gonna have some sort of a secure portal where that information is accessed. So let's, let's just be really, really clear on that. I don't want to send anybody in the, down the wrong path on uh, sending PHI in the wrong manner.
1: Would there be anything wrong with my just asking for that, even though maybe I don't have the type of practice that has PHI? I mean, wouldn't I just go the extra mile? Because why not? And what if someday I get some documents that have that kind of information in there?
2: I don't see much harm in that. Uh, you know, if you ask G Suite or uh, Office 365 to sign that reciprocal business associate agreement I don't I don't see much harm in that some of the vendors may put you on a designated set of servers or you know do do something out of the ordinary but uh, I'm really not certain on on G Suite or Office 365 if, if that's their practice. I know uh, Amazon Web Services what we, that we talked about earlier, they have a number of different layers that they'll place different services in depending on the, the type of security that's needed. They even have government level security that they'll offer. But I'm taking us off track, so I'll digress.
1: No, that's okay. It's very helpful. Um, now talk to me about the difference between free Dropbox and paid for Dropbox.
2: Free Dropbox, paid for Dropbox, the the terms of service are different on the paid Dropbox. They are willing to execute a business associate agreement, but I would just go back to something we mentioned earlier. What is their reputation? If it's the same company that had some of the flaws that I, I mentioned previously, and is is that enough to give you the comfort that you need to use them or perhaps to keep looking.
1: Mm -hmm. And then just in the discussion of documents, Dropbox as a place that we're able to store, sync, and share documents, Microsoft and G Suite obviously have document services as well. So I'm going to assume that based on the earlier conversation and paying for those services is going to put the same sort of rules or terms on documents as much as my emails.
2: Indeed, yes. If you are paying for the G Suite, if you're paying for Office 365, then you do get the document management portion of both of those included with it. And I'm pretty sure it's the same terms of service. I know it is with G Suite. I'm pretty sure it is for Office 365 as well. Same terms of service that govern both of those, uh, the email side and the document management sharing side.
1: Okay. And then... Back to, let's stay on the paid side of things. And you mentioned earlier that uh, encryption. So obviously as a technology consultant, when I'm doing tech audits and technology consults for lawyers and law firms, it's very important for me to talk to them about encryption. Typically I'm talking to them about encrypting their, their laptops and their devices. And then that conversation can of course become into encrypting documents while they're stored at rest or in motion. What about encryption? Who has decryption keys to my data when I'm paying for services? And then if you have some commentary on the free services, which I think was always one of the issues with Dropbox was that at a higher level, they could decrypt your data and get in there if they wanted to, like you said, a few employees. So can you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So you mentioned two parts of encryption that are important to mm-hmm. separate. The data that's at rest, meaning when I've uploaded it to this cloud and it's sitting on the, the cloud, if somebody were to come along and somehow gain access to that data that that's sitting up there physically.
1: In Microsoft or Google or Dropbox's servers, not mine.
2: Correct, not I have my now, servers.
1: I've, I've said, okay, I trust these people. Here goes my data. And up and goes into their cloud services. Now someone else, or again, robots these days, get in there and access that data.
2: Let's say, hypothetically, somebody comes in and steals an entire server rack out of one of their data centers. Is that data encrypted such that once they go to extract the data from those physical servers that all they're gonna see is gibberish, you know, zeros and ones and hexadecimal characters and a bunch of things that only the computers understand because along with those servers did not come the decryption keys. That's, that's encryption at rest. The encryption in transit is when I'm sending it from my machine or if I'm connected to my browser and I'm editing a document, what level of encryption is being used for it to go to the cloud? And conversely, when I am accessing or downloading one of those documents, what level of encryption is being used to bring it back down to me? We want both. We want encryption in transit and we want encryption at rest. And who has the keys to that? I want the keys to that. And no one else. And no one else, because it's my data. I want to be able to control that. And I should be the only one that, that has the access to it. In speaking of the, the free Dropbox, when I've had some of these discussions with people previously, that I've heard people say, well, I can use my own encryption method on top of Dropbox, and, and that should help me secure it, right? Why should you have to do that? Why should you have to use one product and then put another product on top of it? To help secure it. Seems like a lot of work to me. I just want one product that's secure. I don't want to have two that I have to manage right. because one may not be as secure as Seriously. I'm comfortable with.
1: Like, come on lawyers. You're creating a lot of extra work for yourself you have enough <laughs> work to do otherwise. Yeah, I get that too. It was Boxcryptor for a while and then oh, I forget what else, but okay, so answer is pay up.
2: Pay a few dollars a month, pay a few dollars a month.
1: Okay. What about if there's a subpoena of some sort for the data? Can these companies... So I always think about, and I use this example a lot, is, and I hate to use this example, but the San Bernardino Shooters iPhones. Apple just said, we cannot decrypt these phones. We don't have the technology. It's not part of what we offer. We cannot help you. So they were able to get out of that by just saying, not just, I mean, obviously it was a big fight, and correct me, wherever I'm wrong or getting the story wrong, they were able to say, we can't help you, literally. What companies can help them? What if it hadn't been Apple? Or where do I find that information in their terms of service or privacy policies? I would
2: start by looking at what their obligations are to reveal information to law enforcement or to any type of civil subpoena, they do list that information in their terms of service from a technology standpoint, whether they have the ability to deliver it in clear, readable form, or if they're just turning over everything that they have, you know, there's a little bit of a distinction there, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. You get a subpoena for documents that may relate to a particular matter. Are they going to be able to respond to that matter? If so, how? How did they know that a particular document relates to some subject versus a you know, truly heavy-handed governmental takedown of all your information, as we may or may not have seen in uh, recent news with one of the president's attorneys?
1: Mm-hmm. That was a little
2: different story where some entity is coming in and essentially seizing all of the, the documents and, and all of the data. I'm hopeful that it would be one of these all-or-nothing type arrangements with the, with the vendors that we choose because if, if it's some sort of selective process, I want to know how they had access to make that selection.
1: Excellent. Oh, I have another question before we move on. What about data destruction? So I decide to leave or stop paying for the service or I decide to go... Um, to another service, from one free one to another free one, which we've already decided no one's going to ever do ever again. We're going to start paying for stuff. But what if I need to cancel my account? What happens? or how do i where do I look to figure out what's going to happen to my data?
2: So most of them will have a data destruction policy, and they'll tell it will tell you two things. Number one, how do you get your data off of their platform? And number two, Once you have canceled that service, how long is your data going to remain active on that platform? Do you have to do anything to tell them to delete it? Will they automatically delete it after some period of time? And if they don't openly disclose this information to you, you might want to ask why.
1: Back to ground zero, which is if it's not disclosed, you probably don't want to use it. well, let's take another quick break, listen to some sponsor messages and then come back and talk about legal specific products, because so far we've been talking about regular business and consumer products. And now let's turn our focus a little bit and see what we need to look for or consider when we're talking about products that are designed and made specifically for lawyers and law firms. We'll be right back. Law Clerk is where attorneys go to hire freelance lawyers. Whether you need a research memo or a complicated appellate brief, our network of freelance lawyers have every level of experience and expertise. Signing up is free and there are no monthly fees. Only pay the flat fee price you set. Use rebate code NEWSOLO to get a $100 Amazon gift card when you complete your next project. Learn more at lawclerk.legal. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free, and then get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up with the code NewSolo10, that's NewSolo10, and do that at Clio.com, C-L-I-O.com. Okay, we're back. Uh, with me today is Daniel Whitehouse. He's a technology lawyer based out of Orlando, Florida. We have been friends and buddies for a long time, thanks to our work with the Florida Bar, which reminds me, that a couple years ago, the Florida Bar put together a, well, they have a technology committee. That technology committee worked really hard to put together a cloud computing guidelines. And if you're interested in in seeing that, there's a For Dummies form that says, here are the things you want to look for when you're talking to cloud-based Service providers, and then there's a really technical, longer one. But if you just Google Florida bar cloud computing guide, I think uh, that would be helpful for a lot of listeners. So so far, Daniel, you and I have talked about popular services that most of us who are running a business today are using. Almost everyone is using Office 365 and or G Suite. Some of us use both. I'm a buy. Tech user, so I use G Suite on the back end for my email, but I love Office 365, so we sort of funnel them together. I pay for both, and together those services don't cost me, but let's see, eight and six under fifteen dollars a month. And you've made me feel so much better about my data and my emails. Except I'm not a lawyer, so I don't have to be held to the same standards. I mean, I I, I do obviously want to be held to the same standards, but certainly without the same sanctions that a lawyer would suffer. So let's talk now about some towards specific legal service providers. So again, when I'm talking to lawyers, I say, look, if there is a service that you're looking at that's built and geared toward lawyers, a lot of the questions that you're gonna ask have you're not going to be the first person to ask rocket matter, hey, are you compliant with my ethical requirements when it comes to my my bar association?" They started there. But when it comes to legal-specific products, what's your take on those types of conversations?
2: Generally speaking, of course, there are always exceptions to the rule. We can address some of the exceptions. But generally speaking, the products that are geared toward the law office management side of our house that are geared to lawyers, as you said, have gone through all of those nuances already. They know the questions they're going to get from lawyers. And they're going to comply with it because, as we were mentioning before, when you're paying for a product and you're paying a reasonable fee for that product, you have a certain expectation of what you're going to receive in return. They know if they're selling to lawyers that they have a, a, an expectation that the lawyers are going to expect from them. So they deliver that to us. And the terms of service, is, even if you just look through them at a 50,000-foot at view, they look totally different. The the protections are geared around them protecting their intellectual property so that their competitors aren't trying to steal or or do anything nefarious with their IP, as opposed to what they can gain from us as users of the platform and what they can do with the things that we put in and take out of the platform.
1: Very good. I asked you real quick when we were emailing before recording to just look at a couple of those terms. I sent you Clio's terms and Net Documents, two of my favorite products. And as if you're a regular listener to this show, you know that I I love Clio and I think Net Documents is just the end all when it comes to document and email security and storage. I'm gonna assume that their competitors' terms of service are going to be very similar. So let's talk about Clio because that's the one you glanced at for me really quick. But I'm going to assume that Rocket Matter in my case and its other competitors have same terms. Um, did you see anything that alarmed you in Clio's terms of service or their privacy policies?
2: Nothing alarming at the 50,000 foot view. The one thing that has been mentioned about Clio in the past and I've had conversations with them about this it's written all over their website as well they the company is actually based in Canada but they give you assurances that the data you store when you are a US based customer the data you store with them is actually stored in the United States so again that I've had those conversations with them they've given me plenty of assurances and it's written all over their website as well Uh, and in fact I, I think it's it's somewhere in their terms, but you have to dig a little bit for it specific because if you're connecting to them in Canada, you might have a different terms of service than if you're connecting from from the USA.
1: Right. And like I said, I'm going to assume that all the practice management programs are the same. These companies obviously built and geared toward legal. They've got it covered. Net Documents is interesting, and I don't know if you spent too much time with them, but they're privacy policies and their security is going to be like on steroids compared to anything else. <laughs>
2: that, I, that's a perfect example. Yeah, it's a perfect uh, explanation for NetDocs. They, they are document storage on steroids, no doubt about that.
1: <laughs> I like to say that they're a security platform that happens to help us manage documents and emails. And I just got back from their two-day conference in Salt Lake City this week, and they're introducing even more um, security Mechanisms and just more security internally on their servers. So that makes me happy to hear. Are there any other um, products or tools or services that you regularly hear about or get asked about from lawyers that you want to help us understand?
2: Those are the big ones on the practice management side. You know, the one exception that I'll throw out there is there are a lot of online providers or online this referral sources, those types of things that. May not comply with some of our ethical obligations from from other standpoints. You know, on the sharing fees with lawyers type of a, mm-hmm. a scenario. The Florida Bar is doing its due diligence and exploring this and and figuring out how Florida is going mm-hmm. to be in the future with regard to some of these providers. So I, I just do want to make a one small distinction there between. Platforms that are built for practice management versus maybe a platform that's for referral fees or, you know, client marketing, those types of things. Just because it's targeted to lawyers, it may not be built specifically for lawyers, and we we do need to still be uh, diligent in looking at those.
1: That's really great. Well, I've got to say, this conversation has been so enlightening and coming for such a long time. I very, very much appreciate you helping us. I mean— really finally somebody who just said these things out loud instead of, you know, sort of, well, I've heard and I've kind of wondered. And yeah, I think um, I think you've really <laughs> nailed it and said, look, free services are not something that lawyers should be using. It's easy and affordable to upgrade to a paid service where your terms of service are much more compliant with your ethical requirements and your just business requirements and trying to keep data confidential and secured. We could talk about a million other things when it comes to communications with clients, and I mean, this is certainly a rabbit hole we could go down, but I very much appreciate you staying in lane, in this lane, and helping us understand this. Before I let you go, will you make sure and tell everyone how they can find, friend, or follow you? And I hope you don't mind. I'm sure you might get some follow-up questions, maybe attorneys who are looking at some terms of service and they're confused. I suppose you help them with that. And can you help lawyers nationally nationally?
2: I, I sure can. And I'm as accessible as I can be. Our, our website is whitehouse-cooper.com. Of course, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. You know, we, we're not on Instagram. I, I may, <laughs> may have to ask my daughter what this whole Instagram <laughs> thing is about. That's These one platform. <laughs> but a, any of the others, except for Instagram, we're out there and I'm Whitehouse accessible. Cooper. Whitehouse-cooper.com.
1: You could have a really sexy Instagram feed with like screenshots (laughs) of terms of service. And all you would need to do is like put a thumbs down and a thumbs up or highlight really bad terms of service. I mean, I don't think
2: even my mom would follow that one, Adriana.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, if we can't get our moms to follow our social media accounts, you know, it's pretty sleepy stuff. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Daniel, for taking time out of you. Very busy in the middle of the day, day. I know how busy you are And I very, very much appreciate it. Having said all that, thanks for listening to New Solo on Legal Talk Network. If you like what you've heard today, please give us a good rating on iTunes. I very much appreciate that. Share New Solo with your friends and colleagues. And if I can help you in any way, you can always reach me at newsolo at legaltalknetwork.com. We'll see you next time. And remember, you're not alone. You're New Solo.